Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we're joined by Paul Standish, Institute of Education, University College, London. Paul Standish, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. So perhaps you might get us started by sharing with our listeners how it was that you came to do philosophical work on questions of education. Okay, I could give a very long answer to this, but I think probably want a shorter, more concise one. I'd have to tell you, though, that when I was at school, in high school, I was in a British grammar school Mm. and in a quick stream, and so things were going reasonably well, one would think, but then I messed up in various ways. Mm. So I failed my exams, did not go on to university in the usual way. Ah. And um, I think I messed up for three reasons. Uh, the first would be the usual adolescent stuff of wondering what I was doing and what the point of all this was. Sure. The second would be a bereavement in the family, which disrupted things considerably. And the third would be that I was asking serious questions about the point of education. And I did that, in fact, even in elementary school. I was questioning some of the things we were doing and making myself unpopular with teachers as a result. Sure. And that carried on through the secondary school experience. I don't want to dignify that too much because, you know, there's lots of things that can mess up an education, but I do see a continuity between the kinds of doubts I had then and what's continued to motivate me. Mm. I, I did labouring jobs for a while and um, thought I wasn't going to do that forever. Sure. Had just about enough qualifications to train to be a teacher, which may seem paradoxical given what I've said, But I was determined not to teach in the kind of context that I had been educated in. And I wanted to work with what were then called maladjusted children, children Mm -hmm. with psychological problems and special needs and so on. So I did indeed do that for a while. Uh, For various reasons, I then moved into an older age group and worked in something like a community college. Mm -hmm. Um, In the course of that time, I realized, or at least I knew anyway, that I'd missed out on my education in quite a big way, Mm. and I found a master's degree in philosophy of education and took that up. I did all that in my own time while I was working in the day, and indeed that was true with the PhD subsequently. And, and so, uh, so you mentioned that you had these earlier life uh, sort of uh, questions of education. What are we doing? Why are we doing things in this way? And uh, I fully recognize that there is some connection uh, between that and, and, and what you've been doing. Can you talk a little bit about that connection? I mean, were the questions that you, that you were asking then uh, very intimately connected to the questions that you actually ended up working on? Or uh, is the connection more tangential to your mind looking back? That's rather a big question. I'm not sure I've got a clearly formulated response. But I I think that um, certainly when I was at school, I was very suspicious of the unquestioned authority with which some knowledge was being passed on. Um, I also found a lot of it very very dry and unengaging. And there seemed to be a kind of... uh, uh, disciplinary suppression of critical thought mm. in in the classroom in many ways. So I was opposed to all those things, and I wanted to ask why we were reading this book mm. or studying Christianity but not other religions, all sorts sure. of questions like that. Right. Um, and so that has continued. But what also changed is that uh, at the time when I was teaching in schools, um, this is a long time ago, this is 
um, the time of progressivism's rise in the UK, which sure. is late 60s, early 70s. And there was, uh, so I was to some extent involved in that, caught up in that when I was teaching. And I saw great virtues in that in some respects, mm -hmm. but also a lack of attention to content. Interesting. So the arguments from people like Scheffler and R.S. Peters uh, about the centrality of content sure. and the necessity of there being something worthwhile that's being passed on, mm -hmm. that became more um, crucial to my way of thinking about education as I progressed and indeed shaped what I subsequently did. Ironically, I ended up teaching a lot of uh, higher level literature. Mm. I taught English in the community college and deviated from the path that I'd initially planned. And uh, I suppose my study of philosophy reinforced some of these ideas about the necessity of having something worthwhile to pass on. Yeah. Though I do think that needs to be attuned to the cultural circumstances, to sure. the background of the learner in ways that hasn't typically happened. Yeah. And so, and, and, and you mentioned, of course, uh, uh, Peters and Scheffler and the influence that they had on your thinking and in uh, some of the work that you've done. Uh, could you speak more about some of the work that you've done over the course of your career? And what, what are some of the questions that have been motivating you as you've gone forward? Sure. Um, and I wouldn't want to overstate sure. the influence they had because it was a factor in this. I'm uh, aligning myself with them in respect of this commitment to the central question of what is being taught and sure. why. Okay. Um, but what intrigued me when I started reading, uh, do, doing my master's degree and reading more was uh, work by Wittgenstein. Mm. And I became intrigued by the what I saw as a relationship between the insights of the later Wittgenstein mm. and the work of Heidegger, which I'd come across independently, largely through having done Sartre at school right. and got interested in existentialism. So really that was what shaped the doctorate that I wrote, um, Connections Between Wittgenstein and Heidegger. And the project was what it was called Beyond the Self, the mm. initial project. And the idea was to move away from uh, a certain consolidated notion of the human subject, which I saw as characterizing much of the philosophy that I read, especially the philosophy of education I read. Sure. Yeah. And that really is the background that in the 80s to what I've subsequently done. Uh, in the early 90s, my main intention was to write about Stanley Cavell, whose work I'd encountered in the early 80s, shortly after The Claim of Reason came out. And I uh, got distracted from that to some extent because I was encouraged to be involved in a, book, in a, um, a research project and a book on uh, post-structuralism. Mm. And working with others was very much encouraged at that time, so I entered into this collaborative uh, uh, partnership with, with uh, Nigel Blake, uh, Paul Smayers, and Richard Smith. And it was very fruitful and it was very engaging, and I'm very pleased to have done it. That, in turn, spawned, an, spawned a number of other books, mm. which were more or less in a post-structuralist vein. But I would emphasize that we were trying to do something with the ideas. It wasn't just a matter of uh, reiterating what Derrida or Lyotard had said. We were trying to do something with these ideas in relation to uh, the understanding of education and the practical problems it raises. And now for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with uh, post-structuralism, could you uh, tell them perhaps why post-structuralism was uh, attractive for you and uh, for mm. the projects that you're uh, referencing here? Well, I would see Wittgenstein and Heidegger in their different ways as being uh, exemplary figures in the linguistic turn of 20th century philosophy. For both of them, especially in their later work, language becomes central. Sure. And uh, that also inspires much of the work that the post-structuralists do. 
the post-structuralists don't refer to Wittgenstein as much. They're very much coming from a French or European tradition as opposed to an Anglophone one. But Lyotard, Foucault, Derrida, they all say that without Heidegger they would have been nothing. Right. Of course, they're all profoundly critical of him, especially for his political involvements, but also for the substance of his philosophy. And yet they would acknowledge that they, his thought enabled them to make the moves they did. Right. So my view, going back to the nature of education and my anxieties about it earlier on, was that uh, the, there was insufficient attention to the kinds of language we use and the role of language in the substance of our thought right. and the genesis of our thought. So that was the thing that has that preoccupied me then and continues to preoccupy me now. Yeah, and so moving forward with uh, the work that you're that you're uh, describing here, um, uh, could you give perhaps a sense of what you see as uh, perhaps the questions that are before you uh, for your own work, or uh, maybe even the questions that uh, lay on the horizon for philosophy of education uh, more broadly? Yes, I for philosophy of education more broadly. I think there has been um, some. Um, tendency not to look sufficiently at mm. the substance of what is taught. There are questions about that, but it tends to be uh, addressed in a kind of policing function or corrective function. Interesting. As, for example, where, of course, a curriculum may be biased, the teaching of a, a, a subject may be biased in, in ways that um, privilege certain ways of understanding and exclude the voices of others. Sure. All of that is, is valuable. But I think what it fails to do is to address the primary question of what is worthwhile passing on. Mm. And so that question of substance that I talked about earlier on, I'd like to see more attention to that. And that, I think, would involve a more substantive attention to questions of curriculum in a way that's not quite being achieved now. Mm. Is that clear enough? I think it is. Uh, let, me, let me ask this, though. Would that then suggest perhaps... Um that philosophy of education might want to consider more than just uh, the school as a setting for uh, deciding what gets passed along. I mean, is, is, is that right? Well, sure. Yeah. I'm certainly in favor of philosophy of education sustaining its commitment to understanding education in very broad terms. Sure. Of yeah. course, in English, it's a, such a loose term, and exactly. that's partly a problem, especially to speakers of other languages who mm -hmm. have sometimes a clearer division of sure. these different aspects of our lives. But I, I certainly want to see education in terms of it being an essential part of a human life, mm. whereas schooling is not an essential part of a human life. Okay. It is in some societies, one might say. Yeah. But, um, I mean, it's ontologically uh, part of a human life, education, whereas mm. schooling obviously isn't. Mm. Now, are there any other issues or concerns that uh, ought to be taken up by the field of philosophy of education? Sure. I mean, I'd like to say much more about teaching, oh, sure, the way teaching is understood, because, um, uh, of course, we've been oppressed by a, an audit culture mm. and a punitive assessment regime operating in various different ways in different countries, but nearly always um, exacting uh, a, a price in, in terms of the content and substance and experience of education. So I think that there's every reason to continue attacking that way of thinking. To my mind, behind that account, that culture of accountability, there is a whole metaphysics, there is a whole confusion about the nature of the world, the nature of human experience. So I think there's every reason in continuing to attack that. Also, in the context of teaching, I'd like to be able to offer much more... Uh, I'd like to contribute much more, in fact, to the way in which teaching edu teacher education is developing. Mm. What I think is missed in this context is the uh, existential exposure there is in being a teacher. 
on the whole, teaching, uh, the, the teaching is understood in terms of a set of skills that one must acquire. Mm. What tends to be hidden in the picture is the way in which one, when one is in front of a class, one feels exposed as a person. Oh, interesting. And I mean that right down to the physical level. Sure. You know, if there's something wrong with one's dress, this is sure. noticed. But this is not a trivial matter. It's not something that's simply to be corrected. Because actually, I think it touches on the heart of the experience. That mm. if one genuinely engages in teaching in the way that one should, yeah. if one's sincere in one's commitment, one should be exposed as a person in some degree. Oh, one should stand behind one's words. Mm. One is professing a faith mm. in a certain sense. And I think that's crucial for, uh, to help teachers in facing their condition. Um, and, and understanding the potential of what they're doing. Mm. And it's also crucial for students to be properly engaged in what they're doing. Mm. Ironically, Hollywood seems to have understood this because there are many films, Hollywood films, that mm. capture this intense relationship that can develop in relation to the content of what is studied. I'm not talking about simply films uh, set in schools, such as Freedom Writers, for example. Mm. I'm thinking also of the kinds of films that might focus on a football coach's relationship with the, the players, sure. for example, or a tennis coach or whatever. And I think we can learn a lot from those examples about the profoundness, the profundity of this uh, element of human experience. Mm. In a sense, I think teaching runs through human experience. I mean, in Wittgenstein's account of a language game, there are always elders who know the practice mm. into which the young are initiated. So I think teaching is inherent in human experience in some degree, and we don't appreciate this sufficiently. And that's really interesting to me because on the one hand, when I hear you speak about uh, professing something, I also think of the word professionalism mm. uh, and the way in which uh, oftentimes teachers, uh, in a move to be more professional, feel that they must sort of remove their person from, the, from that, that, that practice. Um, but what I hear you to be describing is uh, more in line with, I think, uh, what most people would think of as a sort of mentor relationship, this sort of uh, disclosure of the self in the attempt to develop or uh, assist in the development of, 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 of the other. Uh, yes, yeah. absolutely. But I'm not suggesting something that would require the teacher having counselling skills, sure. for example. Sure. I wouldn't focus it quite like that. Sure. Because this uh, being present to the students, I think, is intimately tied with the teacher's sense of worth in what they're passing on. Right. So we've got a triangle of teacher, learner, and content. Sure. And I think it's vital that we do not focus just on one of the sides of that tri triangle. Um, if we do that, then we get various distortions of practice. Mm. It's essential that we see the relationship as involving all three. And indeed, this is what Plato, I think, did very richly. Uh, the idea of eros that develops from that time embodies much of what I've been talking about. Oh, I see. Yeah. And so to my, to my ears, it sounds as though uh, what you're suggesting is that uh, we might recover the value of the content, and through recovering the value of the content, perhaps uh, we're able to enter into a more ethical relationship uh, uh, amongst teacher-student. Absolutely. And the ethical relationship is not some kind of extra thing right. that's added onto that relationship. It's, essential, yeah. it's internal to right. the whole practice. Right. Oh, interesting. Okay. And, I mean, you use the word professionalism, and yeah. that's a very interesting one, a very popular term now, of course, sure. and a very debased concept, sure. because it really uh, hides the profession of faith sure. that should be somehow embedded in the conception of teaching that I'm talking about. Mm. That, that religious illusion there is not um, merely there by chance, because also... 
you know, there's much work in epistemology now about the nature of testimony in human experience, sure. and that tends to be understood purely in epistemic terms. Uh, how do I get this information that comes to me through another person, right. and what's the significance of that? But, of course, testimony is also the bearing of witness to something, and that seems to me crucial to what the teacher is doing. I don't want to exaggerate this, because it's not as though every class is going to be like a religious meeting. I don't imagine anything remotely like that. But if there isn't at some level of a conditioning of the teacher's approach in terms of this sensing of value in what they're doing and wanting to pass it on to students, mm. if that's absent, then I think there's something profoundly wrong. Mm. Uh, to my mind, uh, what you give us is a, a very uh, rich context in which to ask questions that perhaps uh, we've been uh, uh, evading uh, in various ways. Well, I would hope so. I certainly think there is an evasion, mm -hmm. and you know, Nietzsche's account of nihilism suggests a retreat from questions of value in various ways. Um, you know, the need to recreate values, that's a constant project as far mm -hmm. as he's concerned, and uh, that is what we shy away from hiding behind technical formulae and sets of skills and accountability procedures. Mm. Quite a shame, then, that that really does seem to be the standard of the day. Paul, thank you so much. This has been uh, uh, a real treat. Thank you, Winston. It's a pleasure to talk to you. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.